Production. White Base Chronicles. A Mobile Suit Gundam The Origin Manga Summary and Commentary. Featuring your host, Aaron Henley. Hello again, my friends, and welcome to another episode of White Base Chronicles. I'm your host, Aaron Henley. First off, I just want to apologize for the delay in this episode. Um, Real quick, <laughs> while I was editing uh, this episode, I accidentally um, erased 95% of it. <laughs> so, for those of you who want to get into the podcasting business, here's what I have learned. After you do your initial recording, save it, then make a new copy just for editing. That way, if you screw up royally like I had, like I had you can at least go back. <laughs> so... Um, it was a bit of a shock, but also a learning moment, so there you go. Um, also, uh, another thing, the GoFundMe for the Kyoto Animation Studio surprised everyone with their donations. As of last time I checked, it was around two and a half million dollars. Now, to put this into perspective, the vast majority of those donations were between five to twenty dollars. So, that's huge support, and I just want to thank everyone for their generous donations. Um, if I contribute in any way to bring awareness, then I did my job. Thank you all so very much. Now, let's get into the show proper. I just wanted to also thank you for tuning in, and hope you're having a good day and a good week. <laughs> um... Uh, blah, 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 stuff about what I already did. Now, <laughs> I know when I said I will, now, <laughs> so, so, uh, yeah, if you, uh, hmm. so let's get into the, so let's get into the episode proper. There's not much in the way of housekeeping this episode. Um, I've gotten some feedback on my Twitter feed and Facebook, but, since I'm unsure as to whether the people who sent me things on Twitter um, and Facebook want me to mention it, I'll just err on the side of caution and say a big thank you for all the positive feedback. It really does mean a lot to me that you're enjoying the show. It makes the hours of slaving over a mouse and keyboard listening to this voice doing a chipmunk impression as I have to re-listen at a sped-up rate to do all my editing and throw in the various audio clips, editing out all the uhs, errs, and random noises. Worth it. Now, if only I could stop talking and run on sentences, let alone co coherent thoughts. But I think I do better than some professional speakers. Just turn on CNN and watch, uh... Well, you know who I'm, who I'm talking about. <laughs> it won't take much to take a guess. Also, I was able to check the download rate for episode one, and all I'll say is my jaw hit China, and it's still falling. So, thank you so very much! I rely heavily on word of mouth, so if you enjoy the show and might know someone who'd be interested, feel free to toss my name at them. Whether they're into mecha anime, anime in general, or just want a good, or war stories, or just want a good story, you know, Bring them my way. Another way you can help is by leaving me an iTunes review by searching Tangents Abound in the iTunes store. It really only takes a minute or so, and it helps others find the show. Now, I'm certainly not looking to be the next IT show, but knowing what my audience likes or doesn't like is one of my priorities as a content creator. So, <laughs> while I now begin to extricate myself from this hole I may have dug, Andy? 
Last time on Whiteface Chronicle. Amro learns that he's sorely outclassed as a pilot. Bright has enough on his plate without having to deal with teenage angst, and Char's mechanics have to scrape a ton of blue paint off his Zaku's foot. What awaits our heroes next? Well, take it away, narrator-san. Luna 2. The asteroid Juno was hauled into Earth's orbit exactly opposite the moon for use in colony construction. At its widest, it is 180 kilometers across. Here, at the point farthest from the Principality of Xeon, the Federation forces have their only off-planet military base. So, is this a moon or a space station? I mean, it's definitely a satellite, but the case could be made for both, you know, unlike another battle station that you're probably all thinking of at this moment. How do I know that? Well, because you're listening to a podcast about a manga, and I know my audience. We open on board White Base with Frabo and the three orphans we met earlier. Now, I did read quite a bit ahead, and I still haven't seen their names spoken aloud, so I'm going to break my usual naming convention and give them here, mainly because these three scamps are pretty important to the story as it goes on. We have two boys, Cats, the oldest at eight, Let's at six, and the youngest, Kika, at age four. Kika, though being the youngest, is obviously the ringleader of this group. They're bringing canned rations to the civilian refugees, but apparently that's not good enough for some people as they complain about it. Well, Kika is having none of it and refuses to give the complainers any food despite cats trying to stop her. You know, I'm going to put a tally line here for the Kika is awesome count because that that little tally mark, that's going to get a few more, trust me. Frabo becomes the unexpected complaints department as various refugees start dumping all their problems on her. Now, some are legitimate, such as needing hot water for baby formulas, and there's not enough water in the toilets, but Fra can't help them, mainly because A, she's 16, and B, not really a member of the crew. But there's another pressing reason. White Base is woefully undersupplied for the many refugees on board, and supplies are reaching the breaking point. Other people on board with their complaints aren't quite as urgent. One snooty granny almost starts a mob when she hears that they aren't heading to Earth, but Luna 2 instead. Now, Luna 2 is closer to White Base currently than Earth, and also... This, keep in mind that this is immediately after she hears that they are running out of supplies, and Luna 2 is pretty much the only chance they have to, you know, not die of starvation or thirst. The sheer fact that the oxygen scrubbers are keeping up with the demand is a testament to the Federation's engineers, by the way. Yeah, it's something uh, I think Cape Canaveral could have used when they launched the Apollo missions. Yeah, only takes a massive disaster for someone to realize a square peg in a round hole does not work. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm not going to edit this out. I have just drunk the best sip of tea I have ever brewed. This is amazing. I bought a brand new teapot. I am in love. Back to the show! Well, before things turn ugly, Sailor arrives and she tells everyone to calm the b down... And, you know, that if it wasn't for White Base, they would now be surrounded by all the food and water they would want, but there would be a distinct lack of oxygen. <laughs> she approaches the main elevator to the bridge, where a blonde-haired petty officer, a seaman, I, I'm not really sure. I mean, I know who he is, but his rank isn't given, and, well, I do know he's definitely low on the command structure of the ship. But... You know, that's not important right now, because what is important is he's trying to keep some civilians from using this lift to reach the bridge. I mean, maybe they should put a key code lock on the uh, on the lift doors. <laughs> I mean, why would you want civilians to come onto your bridge anytime they want, even during a battle where you're currently being shot at? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's just silly. I mean, no writer would possibly allow that in any form of medium to happen, especially in animation. I, I just, I can't possibly see that happening. Well, Sailor gets on the lift, and I know, I know, it's called an elevator, but I grew up with Star Trek, and all space elevators are turbo lifts, so sue me. They're, I'm a geek. They're lifts. But she isn't alone, as Bright was heading up as well. 
we get the Gundam equivalent of the Kirk Savick scene from Star Trek II. And also, thanks, Fan Holes Podcast, for leaving that little image in my mind, because I will never be able to unsee it. As Bright tries to do some small talk, and succeeds about as well as I would in his place when talking to a beautiful woman. I believe the term is crash and burn. As he's talking about how this is his first time in space, Selah makes an offhand comment about how Bright's one of the elite. Bright immediately gives her a sidelong look because at this point I'm pretty sure the Federation military is made up of 99.9% Earthborn. Selah puts him in his place with another remark, so Selah now has two tallies in her column as Bright does the huff-puff stride of annoyed man being brought down a peg as he storms out of the lift, and then asks Operator Bill if the Musai cruiser is still on their tail. At the helm, Mirai mentions that, even though he's there, Char probably isn't in any shape to fight them due to his recent losses on Side 7, and with White Base now being near to the only Federation output with reinforcements close by, you know, it's probably unlikely he'd make the attempt. Sela offers to relieve Mirai, and I can't stress this enough. This is absolutely amazing. In 43 episodes of the anime, not once, not once, did anyone ever relieve Mirai from the helm. And unlike Star Trek and Next Generation, it doesn't have a seated helm. The helm on White Base is standing room only. Also, unlike Star Trek, there's no, um... You know, there's no one-off characters who just, you know, want, were at the stations who would get up when the principal cast arrived or, you know, would f- come and sit down when the principals left for their missions. Mar- it's Mariah. She is it. So she has been on her feet for as long as Gundam runs without anyone offering her a break. There's a running joke on Mobile Suit Fandom that, you know, she just slept at the helm because with one sole exception, we never see her off-duty. Ever. <laughs> and the one exception, well, <laughs> uh, we get to see all of Mariah in that one. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that when we get to that. Darn, that's good tea. So, anyway, Mariah finally gets a chance to sit down when Operator Bill announces a new ship on his scope. He confirms that it's too large to be a Federation ship, and that it most likely is a Xeon Papu class supply ship. I love Xeon's names for these things. It's Papua Papau. It's P-A-P-A-U. So however you want to pronounce that, go for it. I'm giving up. (laughs) Well, Mariah does two things now. First, she goes all Jeff Goldblum facepalming. Boy, my head being right all the time. And second... I just got a chance to sit down after taking this helm since leaving side seven, and now some punk Xeon ship is about to get me out of this damn chair? Well, he better hope I don't ever get my hands on him. I'm going to punt him so hard, he'll really eat Xeon space in an hour on sheer momentum, interrupting my break. (laughs) I apologize for the horrible southern accent on that. We cut to the hangar bay where Frabo is bringing a lunch to Amaro, who's been busy repairing the Gundam since Bright put the fear of Bright into him last chapter. Uh, he's been down there so long, the maintenance guys are wondering if, one, he'll ever take a break, and two, please take a break and at least a shower because, God help us, you smell worse than a pig. Fra assumes Amaro's working so hard because of Bright, but... Amuro quickly says that no, he's doing this because he wants to gun him in top shape because he's afraid of dying. So, the 15-year-old is starting to develop some PTSD right here, and trust me, it's only going to get worse. Oh, so much worse. And, you know, this is a serious subject, and it should be treated with the dignity it it rightfully deserves. However, because I find it funnier, I'm going to go with option A, and Amuro just doesn't want anyone thinking he's afraid of Bright. Frost shows off her new cadet uniform, and going over the digital uh, colored version, I noticed a bit of a coloring error. Let me, let me just describe this really quick. The women's uniforms are one-piece pink tops ending in a kind of miniskirt with a belt. It looks all, honestly a lot like the female uniforms for the original Star Trek, but here's the problem. Mirai and Sailor's uniforms have long white pants leading from the waist to their boots, while Fra's 
doesn't. Nope. The adult women have pants hiding their, um, private areas. And, you know, this makes sense because a lot of the ship is in zero gravity and loose clothing goes flying every which way. But the 15-year-old girl... Uh-uh. No. So, after doing a little research, I found out that Yasuhiko-san himself painted the manga, too. And, uh, I'm a little uncomfortable about this. First off, it just proves that Yasuhiko is a comic book god because he literally did everything for this manga. Um, but second, he was also, I think, in his 50s slash 60s when he wrote this, and I'm uncomfortable. I mean, yes, I will admit, it was okay for me 15 years ago when I was, you know, around Fra's age and I was anxious to see any girl in her undies, but now, <laughs> please, someone grab Frabo and get her some pants! And flipping ahead to other appearances in this chapter, she still doesn't have pants, so this wasn't just a one-scene coloring error! Okay, breathe, take a sip of tea. Okay. Apparently, the difference between a cadet's uniform and a normal crew uniform is pants. Who knew? And also, before I get into a 15-minute rant about over-sexualizing teenage girls, especially in anime, manga, com and comics, and how I went from a pervy teenager wanting every panty and boob shot he could get, and the reason why... When I was first getting into anime, I focused mainly on the uh, fan service animes to a slightly relatively mature adult who's now thinking it's a tad creepy because when you're older and have access to the internet, you find out just how old a lot of these anime girls that you loved growing up really are, how old they're really supposed to be. I'm never going to look at Sailor Moon the same way again. A shipwide announcement interrupts me and is made for all crew members to meet in the secondary bridge ops room. Huh. A secondary bridge? Huh, that That's brilliant! Just, just imagine for a minute what could have happened if Vader's Super Star Destroyer, you know, the thing that was about five miles long, had a secondary bridge to take immediate command in case the main bridge was disabled or destroyed in combat. I mean... I'm pretty sure it wouldn't have plowed straight into the Death Star. And also, what, why wasn't the Enterprise's battle bridge used more often? Well, then again, Star Trek is a show where you only send your senior officers into life-or-death situations and completely ignore the thousand or so other crewmen on board who, you know, probably have specializations that are more suited to the task. I anyhow, here's another big change from the anime. In the original series, it's pretty clear that there's maybe, at most, 20 to 30 Federation officers left to work on Whitebase following the destruction that Gene Zaku wrought on Side 7. Now, since budget constraints are out the window and really only depend on how many people Yasuhiko-san wants to draw that day, the secondary bridge is filled with about 50, maybe 60 people. And here's another thing to note. Every single face is distinct. We have men, women, short, fat, gorgeous, ugly, scarred, funny looking. It's even in the backgrounds where they're kind of faded out, they're still distinct. And this again just reinforces to me personally how Yasuhiko-san is the George Perez of Japan. Now, for those of you listening to the show who don't understand that reference, George Perez is considered one of the top comic book artists in history. He is most known for being able to cram about a hundred people or so into two-page fight scenes with everyone being distinct and in action. Michael Bay wishes he could come up with an action scene as epic as George Perez can. And, you know, one day I do plan to do a little discussion on him because Mr. Perez certainly deserves it. So, back to the briefing, Bright is the highest-ranking officer on board as a lieutenant junior grade, or at sometimes they call him a second lieutenant, which is one step above Ensign, the base rank for a commissioned officer. 
So the rest of the people in the room are either non-commissioned officers or enlisted men. So why did Bright call all of White Base's crew in? Well, he's about to pull the greatest maneuver Captain Picard did in every episode of TNG. The Ready Room Conference! I mean, Picard even did it with the Borg sitting literally right outside. I think there's a time and a place to have a chat with your senior officers, and a time when a simple comm call would do. Here's how one particular instance should have gone. Geordi! Captain, I'm doing all I can, but our shields and weapons aren't working, and yes, I know I made him Scottish. Picard. Keep at it, Commander. Worf, maintain fire. Boom. Three lines of dialogue, and I just saved us a four-minute scene from Kuyuhu. Oh, and by the way, and Troy, get off my bridge. Seriously, why is the psychiatrist on my bridge? Because of the short time frame, they, the white base crew really only has two options. They can attack Cho while he's vulnerable, or they can keep running straight to Luna 2, but there's the risk of a fully rearmed and larger attack force coming after them. Valid points are made on both sides, with one being, you know, the protection of the refugees coming first, or being, or, you know, waiting for reinforcements from Luna 2 and taking on Char together. Also, <laughs> during this conference, as a side note, the civilian refugees are getting everywhere, and by everywhere, I mean secure points like the anti-air batteries. Seriously, does no one put a lock on the doors that lead to the guns? You know, I have never served in the military, but I'm pretty sure wherever there's a weapon, there's at least a padlock on the cabinet, right? Or at least someone would go, hey, you know, get away from that gun. <laughs> now, both sides go back and forth, but Bright pulls out his trump card. They can now pull off the same tactic that's been the thorn in the Federation since the war started. A mobile suit attack and give Zeon a taste of their own medicine. He turns to Anson Watts, who I think is the one in charge of the hangar. No, that isn't stated, but you know, I keep getting proved wrong, so who knows what the future holds for an update on their units. Well, they have three gun cannons available, and if Xeon get closer to Luna 2's surface, they can then roll out their three gun tank units as well. And also, since we need a heroic scene of these guys, so of course the Musai will get close to the surface of the asteroid. There's just one little problem. They've got the units, but not the crews, as most were wiped out earlier back at Site 7. Ryu volunteers to drive a gun tank, but he needs a DAC to his Luke. Though, I personally prefer a Jansen to his Wedge. Now how's that for a deep pull? Hayato volunteers to be Ryu's gunner while spouting some Judo Zen teachings to try to keep him from staining his new pants. Wait, what? What? He has pants? He's in a cadet uniform! Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. So, you know, maybe Frabo is just that comfortable in her sexuality and body, and, you know, I applaud her for that. She's still just 15. There's a lot of young men on this ship. And don't tell me some of them wouldn't be making catcalls if they were just in a hallway on white base and the low gravity caused them to see more of her than she perhaps intended. And also, that's not counting all the civilian refugees who I imagine are just parked in the rafters of the secondary bridge since they seem to be able to get to every other vital area on the ship. <laughs> wow. Kai ribs Hayato a bit with a hefty backslap, or he just goosed him. The art could be taken either way. Though embarrassed, Hayato does have a future in the NBA considering how high he jumped off the deck from a complete standstill. Suddenly cheers up, Get char! Yay! Are heard from the literal peanut gallery as Kat, Fletz, and Kika give their input. Sure, some of the white base crew are surprised that kids somehow are on the secondary bridge, but are they? Are they really that surprised, considering what I've been ranting about for the past five minutes? The blonde-haired kid from earlier, who we now learn is named Job John, or Job John, it all depends on who did the English dub, and is a corporal. You know, he's actually higher ranked than I thought, so good for you, Job John. 
volunteers to drive one of the gun cannons while Kai manages to sweet-talk his way into piloting the other cannon. And, you know, one other thing real quick about the gun cannon. In episode one, I mentioned they look like about a Gundam 0.5, but I did forget their defining feature that pretty much gives them their name. The gun cannon has twin shoulder cannons, about half the length of the gun tank's artillery cannons, but much longer than anything the main Gundam's um, shoulder unit has. They were designed to be a long-range support unit to the Gundam's close combat capabilities. So, sorry about that. I know there are a lot of gun cannon fans out there. Okay, back to the synopsis. Bright starts asking about the status of, you know, the most powerful weapon the Federation has at the moment, fully expecting it to be the linchpin of the assault because, you know, the Gundam is the most powerful weapon the Federation has at the moment. This doesn't really have much to do with the scene at the moment, but we see Amuro arriving, tugging at his collar, and it's something he'll do for a while throughout the story. You know, it's almost like it's a visual cue as to his feeling confined into a military position that he has no wish to be in, almost like he's trapped. Huh. Where did I come up with that? That's actually pretty impressive for me. <laughs> well, Bright turns to his nice 80-inch plasma TV, briefing display that totally isn't used for Mario Party by the ship's crew off hours, and starts to lay out the gunman's position when Amuro says he's not going out. You can literally hear the tendons and bones in Bright's neck crack as he gives Amuro a sidelong glance. White, right out, his eyebrow raised with a what-did-you-just-say-to-me expression. I mean, he is mom-eyeing really hard right now. Well, Amuro claims the Gundam is still being repaired, and, you know, it is a valid point. When we were in the hangar, Amuro had the thing pretty heavily dismantled, and I just want to comment that on the Gundam's head, they, it has these side vents. Well, it turns out they actually pop out to the sides, and then crates of ammo for the Vulcan guns comes in and is stored in those, and they slide back into the head. And it's just a nice little treat. Which is not replicated in the Master Grade version of this Gundam that I'm currently working on, much to my chagrin. If it's in the perfect grade, I'll be—I would understand. But uh, I don't think I will ever have a perfect grade Gunpla because <laughs> those are about six times uh, the cost of a regular Master Grade, and the Master Grades are running anywhere from fifty to eighty bucks, depending on the kit. Bright asks another hangar tech named Sergeant Boomer Omer, and if you know Gundam, you do know why I chose that nickname for this guy, but don't spoil for anyone else, okay? That if, if Amuro's right about the Gundam. Well, Omer's put into a tough spot here. On one hand, he has to obey his commanding officer and give an honest report. On the other, do you risk ticking off the sole person we've seen able to pilot the thing in the first place? Well... Omer does his duty and informs Bright the Gundam is pretty well complete and they'd have it finished in time for the mission. Bright's all, there, see, matter's settled. And then Omro's all six-year-old being told they're having to leave McDonald's without going to the play place. I don't want to go! You can't make me go! Omro even tries some, quote, official, and I'm saying that with quote fingers, Excuse about the Gundam being a secret prototype, and they can't risk damaging it due to a lack of replacement parts. Bright, as you'd imagine, is not happy. And poor Fra here tries to reason with Amro, but the but he just, uh, yeah, he yells in her face to shut up. And it brings the poor girl, who, I remind you, just lost her entire family maybe 48 hours at most ago, to tears. Well, great job there, Amuro. Really feel sympathetic for you right now. So, where was it? Oh, yeah. Really feel sympathetic for you right now, Amuro. You know, I wonder if the engineering team could strap you to the controls of the Gundam and lock you in the cockpit for the rest of the trip until your skin fuses to the leather. That's how angry I am at you, Amuro. Well, before Bright can order that very thing, Mirai plays Den Mother slash Peacemaker and convinces Bright not to send out the Gundam. In return, Bright wants the Gundam not only running, but showroom new, waxed, polished, and there better be two coats of wax. 
Because, heaven help you, if there's not. He details his plan as how he expects... <laughs> Bright then details his plan as how he expects the Xeon forces to hide in one of the few massive craters located outside of the Federation base's detection range, since Luna 2 is a pretty big place and the Fetis can only cover so much area. Narrowing it down to a specific crater, Bright lays out the attack. They'll surround the crater with the mobile suits to begin the attack with the white base coming in to pound the nail down. And you know, speaking of that Xeon nail, we cut over to the Papua, which kind of looks like two really big scissor handles glued to a rectangular engine. Apparently, this supply ship is being captained by a lieutenant commander almost got him, and he's been at this a while as Char is surprised his ship is even still in service. And, you know, there's not much I can say about Gotham, but I'll give him this. He's got a great mustache. It's one of those mustaches that reaches around to his sideburns. And, you know, you can tell he takes good care of it. He waxes it. He polishes it. He probably, you know, sings to it in the shower. Well, Gotham is eager to get the resupply done because he feels that with the immense uh, Minofsky particle covering cloud they're hiding in this crater could literally drown, could almost drown him. And I'm wondering at this point, do I press the foreshadowing button or not? Decisions, decisions. Well, anyway, as the Papua docks with the Musai, we head back to White Base as the mobile suits begin launching. Kai almost completely wrecks his gun cannon on his launch as he barely avoids a crash landing due to the extra time given to him by the satellite's low gravity. Ryu mutters to himself that if this was on Earth, they'd now be picking up pieces of Kai all over the runway. He also helps calm the nervous Hayato down as the gun tank simply rolls out of the hangar and its small booster rockets cushion the fall to Luna 2's surface. The six units move out with Bright giving them final instructions while they still have radio communications. Well, at this point, Bright's feeling mighty good about himself right now. In fact, he's even starting to think that he might beat Char in the next few minutes. But before he can start planning his Medal of Honor acceptance speech, Mariah reminds him that, you know, maybe the ship should start moving forward so they can get there in time for the attack. <sighs> Have I mentioned how much I love Mariah? At this point, it's pretty clear that not only is Mariah the helmswoman, but she's also the exo of White Base, and I'm happy. I really am. As White Base proceeds to the crater, all her gun ports open up, and someone is about to have a very bad day. We get back to the Xeon as the Papua releases two shuttlecraft-sized ships that are to dock for the Musai. This is important for later in the story. I think we'll actually get to it next episode, if not definitely, definitely the one after that. Char is a little sad that, instead of six brand new Zakus, he's only able to get three first-run Zaku 2s that, you know, haven't, um, haven't been improved upon as much as more recent models. So it's strongly implied that Zigon's military is stretched pretty thin at the moment, and they're having to scrape the, bot the barrel bottom right now. Um, at this point, in case I haven't mentioned it, that even at the start of the war... The Federation outclassed the Xeon forces by about 30 to 1. The only way Xeon's doing as well as they are is because, one, they prepared for the war and had the initiative as the instigators, and two, mobile suits changed everything. The White Base's mobile suits then arrive at the crater and start setting up their shots. But before everyone is in position, Kai apparently panics for really a pretty unknown reason, and immediately starts firing at the Xeon. While he proves that he can't hit the broadside of a literal space barn, and he sends the transfer into absolute chaos, they the Federation forces lose the advantage of surprise and supporting fire from the heavier cannons on the gun tanks. But with no choice, everyone starts opening up while Char is shell-shocked on his bridge, wondering just what the heck is happening. It's not in the art, but I can almost picture him in my mind doing this. <sighs> he looks out the window and he goes, Dren? Dren, just what is that out there? Oh. 
I see. <laughs> what? Char's the one who's supposed to surprise the enemy and make them flee for their lives, after all. As damage reports begin coming in, he quickly regains himself and begins issuing orders. As his troops rally, Char starts wondering just where this attack came from, and as he puts all the pieces together, the Red Comet chuckles and smiles to himself because, probably for the first time in his career, he has met an enemy just as crafty as him. Outside, his beloved Papua burning around him, almost got him, climbs aboard his Grandpappy Zaku 1 model, a much less beefier and less armored version of the now standard Zaku 2, and manages to get the last of the three Zaku 2s aboard the Musai cruiser. Why? Well, in his own words, I'm gonna make sure that Char gets his Zaku's missiles, all of his supplies. This is a matter of honor! I love that line. During the battle, Kai's gun cannon gets lost in the dust cloud kicked up from the explosions raging around him. But he quickly finds out he's not alone in this pond, as Gotham Zaku-1 comes out of the smoke and punches the gun cannon's head in, shattering the faceplate. The mobile suit goes flying backward from the inertia, and Gotham prepares the ultimate move of the Zaku-1 while giving a great villain monologue. Let, let me see if I can do it justice. <clears throat> Mobile suits aren't for firepower, they're for brawls! Well, I'm the master of mobile suit grappling martial arts! <coughs> I don't... <coughs> Whew. I don't know if I'll keep that in or not. So, boosters flaring, Ghanim unleashes the Zaku One's ultimate attack. The left shoulder charge! Also, just FYI, the Zaku One doesn't have the spiky shoulder pad bits the Zaku-2 has, so I'm not sure how well this is going to work. But we don't have to worry about it, because as Gotham reaches the gun cannon, his head goes bonk on something. Well, just what did he hit? It's something metallic, but uh, as the dust clears, we find out that it's just a 40-foot-long tank cannon as Ryo and Hayato's gun tank makes it in time to save Kai. Now, from a range attack, the Zaku-1 could probably survive even a direct hit from the gun tank. From the mobile suit equivalent of execution range, Gotham is about to find out that mobile suits are for firepower. As Hayato fires and the Zaku-1 explodes at the same time, the burning Papua crashes into the surface of Luna-2. And you know, as much as he loved that ship, it's kind of almost poetic that they both die in a fiery blaze of glory. Going down in a blaze of glory. Ah, that's all I know of that song. The Musai climbs out of the crater as fast as she can, but she's square in the sights of White Base's mega particle cannons. Before Bright can give the order to fire, another ship interposes itself between the two combatants. It's a Federation battleship named the Magellan. Or it's possibly a Magellan-class battleship. It, it gets confusing, I'll be honest, as to what ship's names are versus the ship classes. Because we're going to see more of this ship type later. I think. Well, this Federation ship arrives and it actually threatens to fire on White Base, even if it's a friendly craft. What? Excuse me? You mean that this ship did not see the massive explosions of Xeon ships, you know, burning, and obviously Federation mobile suits firing at them? I remind you, they're using gun tanks and gun cannons, suits the Federation has been using. So they, they know these are Federation troops. Well, the bridge crew is rightly shocked at this turn of events, as the Magellan then brings White Base to the Federation... Luna 2 headquarters under arrest. And, oh, by the way, Char's Musai that White Base had dead to rights and would have made really short work out of, it escapes to fight another day. So right here, no matter what, all the people Char kills later, and believe me, that number hits eh, maybe four Maybe five digits at least, and that's not counting the sequel series and Char's counterattack movie later. <laughs> so all these people's blood is on this Federation ship's hands. 
whew, I'm going to take a break here and try to calm down because, whew, as bad as things are looking, oh, it's about to get worse. It's about to get so much worse. We'll be right back. Listen, Dad, are mobile suits more important to you than human beings? It almost looks like this mobile suit is shaking in terror. It's a mobile suit! Amaro, is that you inside that mobile suit? Let's just see. Let's test the reaction time of your brand new mobile suit. You alone are responsible for the mobile suit now. Is that understood? These are the days when you wish your bed was already made. It's just another mobile suit. Mobile suit. In war, to keep the upper hand, you have to think two or three moves ahead of the enemy. Now playing on VanillasPodcast.blogspot.com. Luna 2's base. After imprisoning what's left of White Base's NCOs and crew and keeping the civilians and volunteers like Mariah, Salem, and the rest in prison on the ship, we cut to an interrogation room where Bright is being given the third degree for his actions. The interrogation is being given by Luna 2's commanding officer, Admiral Phoenix Joaquin, a blonde-haired man who walks the line by quoting every reg in the book, chapter, and verse. No, no, I'm not ashamed of that joke. Bright is understandably upset. Not only is Joaquin interfering with their official mission to deliver the White Basin gun to, to Federation headquarters in a place called Jaburo, which I think this might be the first time Jaburo is mentioned, but I might have missed it earlier. Real quick, Jaburo is the main Federation HQ located somewhere in the Amazon rainforest. But, you know, thanks to Watt King, he wrecked one of the best chances the Federation has had to destroy one of their major enemies due to the Magellan's interference. And, you know, I just... I've been thinking about this. I can't imagine any regular Xeon grunt getting not only a cool nickname, but one that also causes an experienced officer to figuratively and quite possibly literally crap himself on his gurney. So, good job, Joaquin. Good job! The Magellan's captain, who's never named, but I'm just going to name him Captain Baldy. He's a little upset at this accusation, but Watkin does acknowledge Bright's complaint. However, he justifies his orders because apparently there's a bit of a yeah, an understanding between the Federation and Xeon with regards to Luna 2. This mainly boils down to, if you leave us alone, we'll leave you alone. Well, this stinks like weak old fish, but Watkin views it as the price to pay to keep the only Federation asset in space... From, you know, waking up one day to finding a Xeon fleet outside wanting to melt them into a burning ring of fire. Watkin also is not done raking Bright over the coals just yet, however. He calls into question Bright's putting untrained civilians to work at key locations of White Base, even going so far as to issue them <gasps> uniforms. <gasps> Gasp! Sop! Not uniforms! He's also ticked that the Gundam has been used in combat multiple times, despite it being a military secret. So, there you go, Amuro, you just got justification. Watkin, however, is kind of ignoring the fact that, if it wasn't for the Gundam or those civilians, there wouldn't be a white base right now. Or, if there was, it would currently be shooting at Federation assets and not Xeon. In addition, I'm sure they would suddenly see a bunch of Gundams show up with Xeon emblems next to Zaku's. Bright notes this, and I make... <laughs> Bright notes all of my points, but Watkin isn't having any of it. He is even to the point of shanghaiing Whitebase and delivering it himself. Well, Bright realizes he can't do much anymore, but 
He just warns them that, you know, hey, the Red Comet, you know, the guy you let get away, he's probably going to try attacking Luna too. Watkin dismisses it outright as something an officer of Char's caliber wouldn't do with only a single light cruiser and almost no offensive power at his disposal. Uh, let me just put that down for future reference. Uh, Char would never attack a heavily fortified position with a vastly inferior force. I'm just guessing here, but I think Wilhulf Tarkin might have been one of the instructors for Watkins' tactics class. Bright makes one final plea to Watkins to at least let the thousands of civilians disembark, and Watkins does show that he isn't completely lacking in humanity by agreeing to seeing what he can do. We cut to the bridge with Sela, Mirai, Bill, and Ted at their posts. Most of Sale and Mirai really don't have anywhere else to go, and Bill and Ted mentioned, yeah, we, we feel comfortable at, a, at our spots, and we just really don't want to hang out with the civilians. <laughs> well, as each officer tries to cope with recent events, Sailor suddenly gets a feeling. And then bolts to the viewport. Mirai asks what's going on, and Sailor's reply is only that someone is coming. What Mirai can't see, though, is that Sela's eyes have gone completely white. Now, yes, I know this is important, and we will be getting back to it, but I have to finish the scene first, because there's a very good reason why I'm holding off on this major turning point. We cut inside to the crew quarters where Fra, upset at Amuro for apparently lying to Bright about needing to repair the Gundam and, you know, needlessly risking their friends' lives since he's been in his cabin since the briefing and not working on the Gundam, storms into Amro's cabin. She gives him a piece of her mind, but the young man is unresponsive with his back towards her. She grabs Amro and spins him around, only to gasp in shock as he has the same look we saw on Sela, and he repeats that someone is coming. He suddenly stands off his bunk, looking out into the void, both figuratively and literally, and says one word, Char. We cut to the outer surface of Luna 2, where we see some normal-suited soldiers riding rocket sleds. Think the sled scuba divers use for increased speed underwater, but with booster rockets instead of turbines. And at their head, a smiling Char as Nabel. Okay, here we go, folks. I was hoping we'd get into this a bit later, but it's time for the talk. No, no, not that one. Well, maybe in that way later on, depending on what where Yasuhiko goes compared to what Tomino wrote when he did the Gundam novelization. But let's just deal with one life-altering plot point at a time, shall we? So, we come to what could be considered the defining subject of not just Gundam the Origin, but the entire Gundam franchise. <sighs> Ladies and gentlemen, if you thought midichlorians were divisive in Star Wars or Kirk versus Picard, though now I guess the argument could be Kirk versus Pike was divisive in your fandoms, oh, that's kid stuff compared to what we're about to talk about. Ladies and gentlemen, let's rap about new types. New types! Oh boy. I'm glad I can just do a brief discussion here since I think the story is going to go into much greater detail later, but let's just start with the basics. A new type is basically a space telepath. How does one become a new type? Lots of conflicting theories are out there, but Fuzzy Sainawaki of Mobile Suit Fandom has stated my personal favorite because, in my opinion, it makes the most sense. Becoming a new type is simply a random mutation that occurs from living in space for an extended period of time, as most of the new types we see are people who have lived on the colonies, with very few, if any, ever coming from Earth. Well, coming from Earth naturally, I should say, because, of course, later in future Gundam stories, uh, we start getting into some serious Mangala-esque experiments to build artificial new types, but I don't think we have to worry about that for this story. This theory helps explain how Amro, who was born on Earth, not only is developing new type powers, but, you know, 
what usually happens in a story with a protagonist developing supernatural abilities. They become the best there is like no one ever was. Right now, the new type stuff is only at the, hey, what's going on here? This is a nice bad breadcrumb stage. Later, <laughs> well, let's just say I'll have to start buying Pink Floyd albums to listen to and may have to start imbibing in a now mostly legal substance when I write a synopsis. Also, I may have to make quite a few censor bars for my picture blog. <clears throat> but here's a good question you might be asking yourselves right now. Amaro has encountered Char a few times, so it kind of makes sense that Amaro can feel him or sense him. But we've never seen Sailor interact with Char at all, so, so how is she able to sense him? Good question. In fact, I want you to put that in your back pocket and keep that in mind for future episodes because we will be coming back to this. Believe me. And, you know, this episode is running a little long because, I'll be honest, the chapter is one and a half times larger than usual. So I'm just going to cut it off here instead of covering the usual two chapters per episode. Uh, depending on how next episode's story goes, it may be one or two chapters. It will just depend on how deep we get. But if it goes where I think it's about to, maybe just one chapter by itself will give us enough story to chew on. So... What do we have to look forward to next time? The White Base Crew reenacts Dialog 17. Sayla, Woman of Action, more Char action, and a surprise reveal! All this and more next time! Hey, wait a minute! What happened to the gun cannons and gun tanks? Aren't they still out there in space? Guess we'll find out next episode of White Base Chronicles. Who will survive? You have been listening to White Base Chronicles, a Tangents Abound presentation. This podcast is 100% free and no money is made in either the production or distribution of this podcast. All sound clips used in this podcast are owned by the respective copyright holders and are used for review purposes only, and no infringement is intended. Want to see just what I'm talking about for yourself? Check out whitebasechronicles.blogspot.com where you can see panels from the manga that I've uploaded that tie into each episode, usually captioned with my quote, witty commentary. Want to follow along with me? Well, each volume can be found at various book retailers for about the price of a standard trade paperback, or for free at comic-walker.com. Just click the language button to switch to English, and Gundam The Origin is the first listing. The site updates one chapter monthly, and each chapter is in full color, which makes this a steal and I would recommend you dropping them a line to thank them for letting us see this for free. And who knows, by the time the show ends, he may have the entire series available. Care to drop me a line about the show or grab the digital equivalent of a torch and pitchfork? You can send emails to whitebasechronicles at gmail.com or at Twitter at ahenley2011. Thanks for listening to my show, and please check out the other shows that can be found on the Two True Freaks Network. There's such a wide variety of geekdom covered that I'm sure there's something out there that tickle your fan bones. Take care, my friends. And in case I don't see you, good morning, good evening, and good night. <laughs>